Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. In 2013, my next guest found herself in Mumbai in a $37 hotel room and $10,000 in prize money she had won two days earlier. Her goal? To save lives with a bar of soap. That was seven years ago, and she hasn't looked back since. Erin Zakis is the founder of the Sundara Fund, a nonprofit organization who has helped thousands of humans learn and receive the tools to have proper hygiene. It is shocking to know that the simple act of hand washing is not available to millions in this world, and it alone can help eradicate many diseases we would never consider a threat in North America. Along with soap, she has employed women, long considered unemployable, widows, single moms, and those sexually abused or assaulted, giving them real jobs with a livable wage. And did I mention she is just 30? An undeniable change maker, Erin shares with us today how one person can indeed make a difference. Erin, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Christine. It's so great to be here and talk to you. It's just the highlight of my week, so thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. The pleasure is all ours. I'm so excited because, I mean, wow, at just the age of 30 that you've done all this. And I kind of, let's start at the beginning. I mean, this is just seven years. What an incredible seven years. But first, so you won this prize money from LinkedIn. Yeah. And two days later, you were in Mumbai. And what gave you the inspiration to do this? Like, why hygiene? Sure. So after I graduated university, I ended up in Thailand. And I was working for a few different organizations focused on children who are victims of sex trafficking. And as you can imagine, that is an extremely complex, heartbreaking issue. And I found myself completely overwhelmed. And I also thought that towards the end of the two years that I was there, I I felt myself getting disillusioned. But at the same time, one day I was at a school working with children and I realized that they had no soap in the bathrooms, no soap next to the sinks. And so I went to a village next door, bought a bunch of their bars of soap and then brought it back to the school. And I gave the bars to the children and I said, here, wash your hands. Now you can wash your hands with soap. And they just looked at it like it was a foreign object, you know, put it on their head, scratched at it with their nails. I remember one girl who must have been 11 or 13 taking a bite out of it and then crying. And it was this moment which just blew my mind thinking that here I was at 23. I never once thought about soap in my entire life because I had the fortune to grow up in the United States in a middle-class family from Boston. And soap was just everywhere I needed it to be. 
And then for the first time, I was meeting children who were 13 years old who had never seen a bar of soap in their life. It was an alien substance to them. And I thought about the birth lottery and how, but for a stroke of luck, I ended up in this family in a country that provided me with a certain level of healthcare and opportunity. And they unfortunately did not have that same luck. And that determines whether we grow up to be able to accomplish our dreams, even reach the age of five. That determines really like the success of your life is where you are lucky or unlucky enough to be born. And I think why soap, getting back to your point, is really because soap is something that's very simple. Hygiene is simple. I find that the more I learn about politics and certain policies, it feels complex. It feels overwhelming. But I think at a certain level, we can all agree that soap, clean water, access to toilets is just like a basic right for humanity. And it's heartbreaking to think that some people don't have access to even the basics, right? And because of a lack of soap in countries like India, children aren't reaching their fifth birthday. Children are dying of diarrhea, pneumonia, and things that children here in the U.S. don't die of. So I thought that this was an issue that I could do something about. And when I came back home from Thailand, I started researching about soap. And I found out that we actually have enough soap for anywhere between 10 and 11 billion people. But it's a problem of the waste not getting to the need. And the number one culprit of waste is the hospitality industry. So when I did that pitch at LinkedIn that won me $10,000, it was really all about what if we could take the soap that hotels are throwing out across the world and bring it to places where, like Thailand, like India, where people are living under the poverty line of $1.25 a day, get them soap and provide them with life-saving hygiene education. So that was really my why. That's incredible. In listening to you speak, one of the first things that I think of is, first of all, that in looking at your resume too, you could be the UN. You could also, like, I'm also thinking like, why can't she be our secretary general? You know, honestly, because when you look at this, you and I both have worked within the UN. You and I both know the politics of going on. Why do you think, Erin, that For you, it was like obvious. I could take the waste from the hotels, take those bars of soaps, and let me, you know, it is soap. It needed to be cleaned. It was reconstituted back into soap, and then individuals can use it. But why hasn't someone figured this out? Like, what's stuck in that pipeline in charities? Like, do you think charities should even exist? That's a very complicated (laughs) question, and I can argue for and against them. But I think, you know, a part of your question is why hasn't someone done this before? It seems so simple. And soap has been around for thousands of years since the time of the Romans. Why isn't it universal? I think that we live in a time where we have the tools to do pretty much everything that we need to do. And the one thing that really holds us back is this belief that we can't, especially with women. I think the biggest battle for me has not been like access to funds or access to the kind of network I need, but really like getting in touch with my own inner demons and asking myself, like, who am I not to do this? 
why don't I feel deserving of leading an organization to make the kind of change that I want to see in the world? So when we ask ourselves, like, why aren't more people starting organizations and why aren't more people inspired to act quickly? I think it's for the sole reason of people believing that they might fail, they're not enough, and that they don't deserve to live that dream. And I see it with myself and I see it with pretty much every woman that I come into contact with. So I think as Sundara grows and evolves and as I grow and evolve, I really want to lead with giving people the confidence to know that they can go out there, they can give it a try, and that I'm really no different than anyone else. And every day it's a struggle, to be honest with you. It doesn't really get easier as you go on, but you do know yourself more and you do see your past success and that helps quiet the inner demons. Sure, I do. And, you know, as a business owner, I understand that things, you know, today I had to put out a fire at 8 a.m. and it started last night. It constantly exists, but I think that you start to know thyself. And I think Michelle Obama had said it wonderfully in her book and becoming that she had went to the room and then she suddenly realized that not everyone was that smart. You know, you kind of tell yourself, well, I couldn't be secretary general. I'm not that smart. I'm not that worldly. That's not true. You know, you suddenly get in the room and you realize, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) What have I been telling myself? I don't know if that's on your your list, but I'm going to vote for you for secretary general. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Because I think we need that. But I know that you work with a lot of these people and I have too. And I think, but one of the things that I was just so dumbstruck by is that, you know, there's billions of dollars, billions that get funneled into charities and yet people still don't have clean drinking water. And when we first met, that's what was shocking to me. You had sent me a picture of water that was just, I mean, it was filled with, you know, God knows what. Gasoline in Uganda, right? Uh, Yeah. Why is that? I mean, we see all these charities, you know, I grew up with Bob Geldof, like, you know, we were going to feed the world. And then what happens? Is it so complex? It makes me think, I think that we should be focusing on little organizations. Right. You know what? This is a question that I ask myself all the time. Why haven't we solved global poverty? Why haven't we even solved poverty in our own country? Why haven't we set up something like universal basic income? Why is our health insurance so screwed up? I had a neck injury and I had an MRI and I'm fortunate enough to have decent health insurance and I still am paying $2,000 in medical bills. And I think to myself, what if I was an immigrant? What if English wasn't my first language? What if I wasn't fortunate enough to live in New York and be close to hospitals? What if I couldn't call a friend and get seen right away? So I think the system is designed to have people who have so much money, so many resources, and the vast majority of people to really struggle. And I think that we have various systems that keep that in place. If you think about gosh, like the structure of the governments in some of the countries that we've worked in. And just like the sheer complexity of the problem, I do believe holds us back from getting like clean water, electricity, vaccinations. These things should be human rights. And somehow they're not. And somehow we aren't as successful as we should be with them. But I also think that it's a problem with 
the world's best talent not going into this industry, unfortunately. I have friends who are brilliant and successful and they've chosen careers in tech or they've chosen careers in finance and they've chosen essentially to make a rich, usually man, richer at the end of the day because it pays a six-figure salary and benefits. And I can't really blame them. But when our system is set up for the most mind power to go to companies like Google and Facebook and Bloomberg and Microsoft, that is where I see one of the biggest problems, at least with people my age, that they're really not attracted to starting their own organizations or they're not attracted to working on cancer research or on issues of poverty. And so I feel like we need to figure out ways to really attract the best and brightest minds and get them to focus on these problems instead of like the hottest new startup or the hottest new tech thing. I lived in San Francisco for a year and worked in Palo Alto. And so I saw a lot of this, just brilliant people working at companies designed to make rich people richer. So ultimately, I'd like to see that dynamic be changed. I don't know how it's going to be, but if anyone has ideas, I'm all in and I want to hear it and discuss and see what I can do. You so articulately explained that so well. Thank you. I think that's exactly it. We need to move from the me to the we again. And I keep bringing up Michelle Obama. She has a podcast now. Yeah. That just came out second episode. And she's just really clearly, we, we all know how amazing she is. And she went back to when, again, I'm more her age than yours. And back in that time when her father was, he worked for the city, but his salary was able to provide for their family, their family of his wife and her brother, you know, four individuals. And they lived in their aunt's house and there was a community and everyone helped one another. I think that we have moved from that. And she had said that now that's not possible. You can't just have one job at the city and you can survive. You know, everyone's got to work. And now everyone, we've moved to this individualism. The New York Times actually did an incredible article this morning on why COVID has not been successfully controlled in the United States. And one of the reasons is, is that we have this individualistic society. Well, I don't want to wear a mask. I don't, shouldn't have to wear a mask, right? right. Whereas people in Europe have a socialist and they have insurance and they have been paid the entire time they were off. No one had to worry about getting meals on the table, right? And yet, you know, powers that be like to say socialism is a bad thing, but that's ultimately what every single United States, I hate to say American, United States, you know, there's a South America too. So every, every single resident of the United States wants, you know, that security. Yeah. As you're talking, you make me realize that in setting up this, I've had immense privilege from birth. You know, my mom's a dentist, my dad's a lawyer. I have a safety net should this all fail. And I think that there are not enough people that have the financial cushion to start their own organization or even to work at a nonprofit because they're a single mother and they have three children to feed. They have student debt to pay off. They have to take care of their parents. So one of the reasons why I think there's not the kind of change that we'd like to see is I think the real solutions come from the people that have lived the experience. 
sometimes I think Sundara would be a lot more powerful if it was started by someone who's from India and actually lived and grew up in the slums rather than a white girl from Boston, right? Because I would understand the the complexity of these situations and might be able to make change at a much quicker, faster, more culturally appropriate level. And so recognizing that privilege that I have, I've also tried to figure out how in this new program that we just launched called RISE, how do we get capital, resources, virtual business trainings to these brilliant minds that are often left and like not invested in, in these emerging market countries, because I really believe that there is so much untapped brilliance, but it's not being funded. And so that's my own personal way of trying to make some of the change that I'd like to see in this. But I do realize that in order to have much broader change that we can all feel, many of us have to be doing our part to really change what we see as the flaws in this system. Agree, agree. So Aaron, tell me, so who instilled that in you to be of service to others and not just necessarily go out and do as much as you can for you? Was it your parents? I do think that my parents raised me with a certain level of expected contributions back to my community, whether it was financial or every week I'd volunteer at a hospital. And both parents are in like helping professions. But I think my drive really comes from feeling like an outcast for so much of my life. There was like, I had to switch classes because I was teased so much. There was an I Hate Aaron Club that met Tuesdays and Thursdays afternoons. I remember like I was invited to the prom as a joke and the kid put a stink bomb in my trick-or-treat bag. And so a lot of my memories of who I was as a child was very much like a misfit or someone to be pitied or someone who didn't fit in. And I think the only time that I felt okay or happy or connected was when I was like doing something for someone else. And that's something that I've really like kept front and center. I always, while I might've gotten older and more and better adjusted and had friends as I aged, I can never really like forget about how cruel people were to me and how much I needed a friend and how much I needed someone to look out for me and check in with me and see if I was okay. And I feel like when you've lived that experience, you become aware of how cruel the world is and how unfair life is. And so I feel like for the rest of my life, I will always try to just go the extra mile because I'm realizing that everyone is hurting in some way, shape or form. And our lived experience, as we were talking before this call, is full of suffering. Whether it's losing a parent, whether it's dealing with a job loss in COVID, we're all going through something. And so I want to keep that kindness and generosity of spirit front of mind in my career, but also in my personal life and the person that I am outside of the nine to five too. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for sharing that story. And thank you for being who you are, because I think many have also gone through this and chose to do something different, perhaps chose to take that trauma and turn it into something that would probably be violent or hurting others, right? And instead you try to take it 
and create good. So thank you. I think that this is also a pattern in, in many of the change makers that I've interviewed, anyone who's making great change, that it has come from a place of trauma. In my own story, as you know, I, I was diagnosed with cancer and then had several of my friends pass away. And recently my mother passed away from cancer. And so instead of, you know, at that point, you can go to that, oh, woe is me and why is this? And why not me? And what am I supposed to do with this, right? How can I change that? So thank you for looking out for the underdogs. And thank you for doing it as well. I've followed your journey with Sundar and watch how you've grown. So you really have grown from a few locations. And I can't, you know, the audience, I want you all to know that. I mean, really like Erin, just like, should we go? She would set this up, just go to the countries. You've had dengue fever, how many times? Six? Uh, Well, I have dengue fever. I've had chikungunya, typhoid, anything you, you can name. If you like dengue, you could only get it like certain amount of times, right? That's right. I got it in Brazil and then I got it again in Thailand and I was hospitalized for a month. I've had so many bouts of food poisoning, so many going to the bathroom in inappropriate places. I mean, it's been a nightmare. <laughs> I know like now Sundar's in India, Uganda. And how many lives do you figure that you've impacted via employment and just, you know, giving a bar of soap? Yeah, well, we have employed 40 women full time, but our soap and education resources reach around 200,000 people, which sometimes feels huge and sometimes really feels like a drop in the bucket, if I'm going to be real with you. Because on one hand, a country like India has 1.4 billion people. So really anything that's hundreds of thousands and not hundreds of millions feels like a drop in the bucket. However, I do think that you know, I'm very tied to this idea of female empowerment and women helping women. And I know I'm speaking to the choir here because so are you with really everything that you do. And I feel like that my proudest achievement is providing employment to these women because it's really like an unknown number of people that they each impact. And I really do believe it's a a domino effect. So when this woman goes from being unemployed and a survivor of domestic violence, who's illiterate, can't even write her own name on the checks to someone who is the sole breadwinner for her family, who's putting her children into school, buying them clean new uniforms, taking care of her father who just had a stroke, someone that people actually look up to I think I'll never know how many lives we touch in that way. And so much of the credit goes to them because I think about like, I have a pretty cushy life. I get to like open my MacBook and log on and do things like this, which it brings me so much joy. And these women work six days a week in very hot, humid, brutal conditions on their feet so much of the day, but they're the real heroes and inspiration. So I just like to highlight them and like the change that they're making and we'll never really know how many people each of them are touching, but I imagine it's a lot. You bring up an excellent point about that one person matters. I do think it's a U.S. thing that, you know, it has to be big, 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 like, you know, it's just a drop in a bucket, but that's not. And that's what we're dealing with right now with so much with the civil unrest that we have in this country is that every little march, every single march you do counts, right? Every single step. And so you have no idea to track that woman, like you said, couldn't write her own name on the check, who is now 
can support her family. That one life matters. It does. It really does. And you never know like which woman might inspire another woman in her village to run for local government. We actually had one of our employees be the first woman ever to run for local government in their state. And they, she didn't win. So the net outcome is the same, but there's so much more that goes in there because she is clearing the way for a woman to come and run for office and actually succeed. And so we have to realize that these changes happen slowly, but there's a lot of buildup before we see that tide really changing. Exactly. Exactly. And we have to be patient. We have to realize that this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. So you have a new initiative, Rise. You briefly touched on it. So tell me how that is. And I know that directly impacts women who are starting these businesses and helping others. Yeah, of course. So I think that this year for me and for pretty much everyone across the board has been a time of real self-reflection, thinking about what do I want to do with my life and what's the legacy that I want to leave. And I think it's a lot of it was also influenced by the Black Lives Matter protests that I've, I've been seeing and participating in in New York and realizing that as a white woman, I have access to so many resources that my peers who are black, brown, do not have access to. And I'm also fortunate enough to be Jewish and to have a community that really supports me. I have a friend who's this rock star female entrepreneur, and she's Korean, and she doesn't say that her community invests in her and supports her at every turn. So I realized that I have had so many experiences, funding, success, that is really just because of what I look like and where I came from. And if I'm lucky enough to have that, how can I share that with people who aren't? And so with the help of my team, launched this new initiative called Rise by Sundara. And what that is, is grants of $5,000, a year of mentorship, all of it's virtual, very COVID friendly and COVID safe, and business training and resources. And we'll help each entrepreneur with Gantt chart, log frames, pitch decks, business plans, everything that I wish someone had taught me along the way. And it's our priority to fund primarily women, but we're also open to funding men whose innovations primarily benefit women. An example is we just funded an entrepreneur in Nigeria who's incredible. He has an MD, an MPH, and an MBA. Insane. And he has he was really moved by the statistics about rape of women in Nigeria when they are trying to access public toilets, especially at night and early morning hours. And so he found a way to make a toilet out of 100% recycled plastic that he finds in dumps in Lagos. And he built these toilets and the toilets use 80% less water. So the water that you use to wash your hands is then saved and piped back into the toilet to flush the toilet. And then um, the waste is saved and converted into biogas, which these women who manage the toilet can sell and use to support themselves and their families. And he's brilliant. I mean, I should be working for him, but for the fact that he is in Nigeria, if he was in the US, he'd be running a Fortune 500 company. Right. And I find that it's a 
pleasure and it's a privilege to financially support people like Obichi is this gentleman's name. And I'm just really excited to see who else we can support. We already have 191 applications that have come in. They're coming in from Kenya, Papua New Guinea, Liberia, just all over the world. We are having people invent ways to filter water with moringa seeds. We have a woman who's making mosquito repellent soap. There's brilliant minds out there and they just need funding and they just need connections. And we're here to really give it to them and provide support where we can. That's incredible. I, my heart sings when I hear that all you're doing because I can see how it's going to make such a difference. How are you funding this? Is it strictly on donations? Can people donate? Or Yeah, people can definitely donate and we are fundraising right now. So sandarafund.org and you'll get to see everything about our new RISE initiative. We're also looking for corporate donors. We're also looking to apply for grants for this. Just in full transparency, this year has been so hard to fundraise. We lost 70% of our funding this year because we got most of it from hotels. And when hotels are furloughing or laying off 40 to 60% of their employees, so too goes their corporate social responsibility budget. And so we are in a tough space in the fundraising (laughs) department, but we do have a team of talented passionate rock star women that work with me and we are very dedicated to this idea and we have a board who is planning a Sundara virtual um, fundraiser week that is coming in October and so we're really excited about this as a challenge and would welcome any other support because we'd love to have that. Wonderful and again that's sundarafund.org. Yeah. I looked at that, of course, this new rise and and this new initiative, and I was shocked. You're speaking about this entrepreneur from Nigeria. I was shocked to read, so people could understand this, a quarter of Nigerians, that's 47 million people, have no toilet, right? Have no access to their own toilet and have to use fields or find places to relieve themselves. Right. I just want people to understand that 47 million people. And that is what happens. And that, that's long been the case. I mean, this is a century's problem of women going to use the toilet. You may have to use it at night, right? You know, we're not always on this time clock and going into a secluded area and then risking being raped or assaulted or even right. probably killed. And the fact that he wrapped this together and then he also did it sustainably and then created and turned the waste into compost is just like, wow. Yeah. Right? Absolutely incredible. Yeah. And I think about my own experiences in India and in Rwanda, and I've noticed that the women that we've worked with, you know, when you offer them a drink, they'll often say no. And they drink very little water throughout the day because going to the bathroom is such a stressor for them. And they'll often say that they only go to the bathroom like two times a day. And I think about all these other problems, dehydration, it's not healthy and they're working in hot human environments. So of course being sexually assaulted is a huge problem, but there's also all these other smaller problems that come with that. And so increasing access to toilets for women, it's such a win in Nigeria. And hopefully this initiative can be scaled to other countries because 
as you said, like public defecation, it's an awful situation and we shouldn't be dealing with that. If we can send people to the moon, if we can colonize Mars, why are we allowing people to defecate in public? Right. Why can't everyone have a toilet? Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. So thank you for that. I'm going to ask, I ask everyone who comes on. Yeah. I know your story, but I know that it sounds like we wrap this up in a nice package and it all sounds great, but there's a lot of hard work that goes into this, as you mentioned, not to mention the illnesses that you suffered. And, you know, at one point you had all your employees quit at one time and then you were like, yeah. you keep on going. Yes. What is your why? Like when you get up in the morning and we all feel this is like, oh, I don't know if I can do another day of this. What has you continue? That's such a great question. And I think my why goes back to the first time I went to India. I was 19 and I met this one girl named Priyanka and she was just this beautiful, incredible girl. And every morning I would French braid her hair and tell her dreams about what I thought she would be. She would raft down the Nile and go to China and teach English in Chicago. I I don't know why that was in the mix. And I lived at this orphanage for a few months when I took a break from school when I was 19. And then I had to go back to school. And I remember making promises about getting her Facebook. I don't know why I thought that would really like improve her quality of life and sending her chocolate. She'd never eaten chocolate before. And I called the orphanage and asked to be put on the phone with her. And they told me that she'd passed away and she was 10 and she was an orphan. And I said, what happened? And she had an aggressive form of HIV and the orphanage didn't have enough money to pay for the government subsidized antiretrovirals. And I remember asking, you know, how much does that cost? And they said 10 cents before they hung up the phone. And I mean, 10 cents, I don't know the last time I even bought something for 10 cents. I don't know when the last time I saw a dime, but to know that like something that small was the difference between life and death for her. And that in so many countries, life is so cheap. I grew up thinking that life was fair and that if you will it, it will happen. And if you work hard, you can do whatever you want. And now I realize like those are kind of just lies that we're fed to work hard and to behave. And it's true for some people, but for the majority of the world, it's not. And I believe that I have an obligation because of girls like Priyanka and boys like whoever her male counterpart would be, who just didn't get the privilege I did. And so if I am fortunate enough to wake up every day, I need to be doing my part to level the playing field so that in a few years time or by the time I die, that there won't be girls like that suffering from that kind of fate and that more people can really have a chance to make their dreams happen and more people can make it a full, healthy life that they've lived and really like a life worth living. So yeah, that's my why. Aaron Zakis, you inspire me to know, and you're an amazing human. And I thank you for being on the show today and for sharing your story. Your impact's profound. I hope you know that. And thank you for doing all you do. Thank you. Again, let's remind everyone. So please, if you can, I'm sure you need hands as well. You can go to sundarafund.org. That's S-U-N-D-A-R-A. 
fund.org and donate, help, volunteer. There's many things that you can do and be a part of this change. So thank you so much for being on today. Thank you, Christine. And I just want to say that it's only years of getting to be your friend that allows us to connect this way. And thank you for being such a light in my life as well, because this is a relationship that I treasure. And we've been through so many ups and downs in the world and in life together. So it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. What a treat. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.